Hello to all my 101 fellow History Podcast listeners. I hope all of you are doing well tonight. Where I'm at, it's uh, thundering. And given how hot it is outside, we could use just about every ounce of rain there is possible. So if you hear rumbles of thunder, just know that there's a reason for why it's happening. Anyways, I look forward to sharing another uh, session of tonight's, um, or should I say that the uh, podcast we are talking about through the perilous fight from the burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner, The Six Weeks That Saved the Nation by Steve Vogel. We are now going to be talking about um, the American side in terms of uh, who's going to take up the fight, or really, in a sense, who has enough courage to muster up a fight against Rear Admiral George Coburn. Well, I happen to know who is going to be that individual. His name is Joshua Barney, commander of the U.S. Chesapeake Flotilla. Who is Joshua Barney? He is born in 1759, raised on a farm outside of Baltimore, Maryland that is. Joshua Barney has uh, the sea born into him. In other words, he's got a passion for ships and for water itself at a very early age that does uh, serve as a significant asset because he goes to sea as early as age 12 by 1771. Now think about this. 12-year-olds today can learn about maritime history But could a 12-year-old actually start out at sea? In this day and age, no. But in 1771, by the time you're over the age of 10, you kind of are considered an adult in some ways. Or in a lot of ways, I should say, because most children don't make it past the age of 10. So for Joshua Barney, he goes to sea as early as age 12. And by 1775, which is the same year that the American Revolution breaks out, At age 16, he is second in command to his brother-in-law aboard a merchant ship bound for Europe. Now, sadly, his brother-in-law dies, but Joshua Barney himself assumes command of this ship, and not just command of the ship, he goes as far as to sailing the ship to the French Riviera. By age 17, he is an experienced sailor, He becomes the youngest captain of a Continental Navy frigate. Wow, at 17, you could say he's like a prodigy on the sea. He's worked his way up from rookie now to um, being the youngest captain. You know, when I think of people who are captains, I usually think of, in the Navy, that is, people who don't earn that rank until they're somewhere in their 20s. But we also have to remember... um, Joshua Barney, that is, uh, when he's in the Navy, there's no such thing as the United States Naval Academy. And for starters, we're in the process in 1776 of declaring our independence from England. But at the rate he's going, you know, he might as well, it would be easy to say that he would be the equivalent of of a U.S. Naval Academy graduate. He's that gifted and bright. He even captures a British warship known as the General Monk on Delaware Bay in 1782. And Joshua Barney himself was even taken prisoner three times by the British. 
three times as a prisoner, these experiences as being a prisoner of war left him with a lifelong dislike of England. That is the British military. But, but if you've been taken prisoner three times by the British, I don't think there's a whole lot of love left for them. Well, after the American Revolution, and in the years, I should say, after it, especially by the time George Washington and John Adams are uh, presidents, most notably between 1796 and 1802, Mr. Barney serves as a captain in the French Navy in the West Indies. Why is he all of a sudden in the French Navy? Well, apparently, after the American Revolution, he did have a bit of a fallout, and some viewed him as a traitor. He joins, um, this is in large part because of the unstable relations between the U.S. and France. You know, it's interesting, uh, especially during that time between 1796 and 1802, but most notably in the late 18th century, um, France and England are at war, and the United States has chosen to remain neutral. But as for Joshua Barney, he decides to serve in the French Navy, and he's in the West Indies. Now, you know, you look at Thomas Jefferson, you know, he was pro-French, so I think he would have actually liked Joshua Barney's decision. However, when Joshua Barney comes back to the United States to um, ask to serve in as, uh, what do you call it, a temporary stint in the Navy, he's not only rejected by President Jefferson, but also rejected by President Madison. I'm not sure why the two of them really had um, their reservations, but I, I guess there was a compelling reason for it. But what I also found interesting is that during the time that Mr. Barney was captain in the French Navy, and even before, uh, actually rather before the American Revolutionary War itself ended, Joshua Barney met Benjamin Franklin in Paris, whom he delivered dispatch letters to. He must have made a good impression on uh, Mr. Franklin. But shortly after Congress uh, declares war on England, Joshua Barney decides that it's time to take action by um, joining in on the act, and he commands an armed cruiser being the privateer Rossi. Over a four-month span, Joshua Barney captures 18 British merchant vessels valued roughly around one and a half million dollars. It was considered to be the most spectacular privateering runs of the war. Now, here shortly we're going to talk about privateering and why it was so essential during the War of 1812. But I think it what Joshua Barney did in a four-month span is remarkable, capturing 18 British merchant vessels. So, here's, the, here's a question. What is, pri what is privateering, or in other words, what is the role of a privateer? A privateer is a private person or a ship who's engaged in maritime warfare under commission of war, a sovereign or delegated authority issued commissions known as a letter of 
of marquee. A letter of marquee is known as a government license, which allowed a private person or a privateer or what's known as a corsair to attack and capture vessels of a nation at war with the issuer, meaning the person leading the attack. The letter of marquee included permission to cross international borders to conduct an attack. Did the United States have success with privateering? The answer is yes. It turns out that Baltimore, Maryland, um, led the way of all United States uh, cities, especially on the East Coast during this time, in fitting more privateering, more ships of what you call privateering status than any other um, city or port town. Baltimore fitted about 58 privateer ships. And the British Navy, uh, or I should say the Royal British Navy, had no luck with privateers, period. Matter of fact, privateers caused millions of dollars in damage to the British commerce, to British commerce. Does anybody want to take a guess at just how many um, enemy vessels, that is, British ships, were, um, were um, taken by um, American privateers? It's a high number, but the number is between um, 12 and 1,400. The answer is 1,338. That is the exact number of enemy vessels or English ships, more than a third taken by Maryland ships alone. And in the summer of 1814, which, yes, is going to be the darkest um, year in our nation's early republic, but if there is a bright spot, in the summer of 1814, the British will lose an average of 50 ships per month to U.S. American privateers, mainly in British waters. What ships enabled American privateers to have great success? The answer is, a, is are the two-masted schooners. They were quick. They, were, they weren't supersized ships, but they were easy to sail across the uh, Chesapeake Bay and in other parts of um, bodies of water, especially along English uh, waters, or should I say British waters. But the fact that the British were losing an average of 50 ships per month, I, I think is pretty uh, remarkable. It may have helped uh, prevent some other uh, would-be potential attacks. But as for Joshua Barney, he gets a lot of support most notably from Navy Secretary William Jones. He takes up Barney's offer to help fight the British on the Chesapeake. He enters the Navy as a, as a captain commanding the Chesapeake Bay Flotilla. Now, what I find interesting about the term flotilla is that it's a Spanish word, meaning a small fleet of gunboats. Squadron is the opposite, meaning large uh, unit of ships. I think it's safe to say that the British are more known for having squadrons, that is, large units or large boats, that is, whereas the Americans are going to have um, flotillas.
at this point. So anyways, um, a flotilla is a fleet of gunboats, and, or in other words, small naval warships. In the case for Joshua Barney, these small naval warships are going to help attack, and not only just attack, but disrupt um, further invasion of British forces along the Chesapeake Bay shoreline. Between the time of June 1st and June 10th of 1814, multiple skirmishes are taking place up and down the Maryland eastern shore. But during that 10-day span, Joshua Barney and his men are able to hold their ground. They are able to um, modify and prevent um, some other potential attacks from happening. Neither Barney nor any of his uh, men lose their lives, which is very remarkable because... This is a game of pins and needles. We are really at a, not just so much at a breaking point for the country, but we are um, really in a position now where we don't even know what to expect day in and day out. But thank heavens we have Joshua Barney, because if it weren't for him, who knows what would have happened during that 10-day span. Think about that. Were there other well-known American privateers besides Joshua Barney? Yes, there was another fellow named Thomas Boyle, and like Barney himself, he too is a native of Baltimore. Mr. Boyle was a captain of a 14-gun schooner known as the Chasseur. Mr. Boyle captured or sank 17 British vessels. This caused a lot of uproar among British merchants. Wow, so this is very encouraging to know that there are other people out there who can take a stand on the British Navy, even if it means not doing it in proper warfare style. Well, we're going to go to June of 1814, because June of 1814 is going to be the start of, um, of receiving, um, what do you call it, it, further intelligence reports that are going to um, raise more red flags for President Madison. So on June 18th of 1814, Washington, D.C. receives what we might call an alert. This, the alert they get is of British presence up the Patuxent River, threatening the capital. Where is Francis Scott Key during this time? He's in the middle of trying a court case. Remember, folks, he's a lawyer. And at the same time, he rejoins the Georgetown militia, serving as a lieutenant with the title of quartermaster, being responsible for procuring supplies. By June 19th, the residents along the Patuxent River are fleeing in fear as British cavalry make their way through um, up and down uh, the Patuxent, and in, in one instance, the British cavalry killed one civilian while capturing five. It's bad enough that war itself on Washington, D.C. can occur at any moment in time, but to make matters worse, the British are still doing whatever they can to make uh, people living, live in fear to the point where they are fleeing in panic, they don't have a, a plan of action on where they're going to go in terms of a safe refuge. The bottom line is they are um, at their own mercy 
without any proper um, governmental direction in terms of support. After all, James Madison did tell uh, the mayor of D.C. from a previous podcast I mentioned, he basically told the mayor that um, Washington was going to have to fend for itself. So if James Madison himself has said that, then um, how are the the American people, especially living along the coast, going to have any confidence in his, not just in his administration, but his ability to be an effective wartime um, commanding um, what do you call it, wartime commander-in-chief. Is Francis Scott Key feeling uh, confident about the overall um, future of what lies at stake? No, he does not feel confident at all. Not just about the future, but the overall state of preparedness. He already can tell for a fact that there is no fortifications established in DC. He can already see that nothing has been done to the point where, um, what do you call it, where a 25 or 50 percent modified reduction would take place. As for John Stuart Skinner, who is the American prisoner of war agent, he already knows uh, Rear Admiral George Coburn um, well as it is because he. Um, has had to uh, deliver um, mail uh, letters to him. Uh, He is obviously having to uh, find out from the rear admiral uh, the sailing schedules of ships coming in and out of Annapolis. So John Stuart Skinner has heard Rear Admiral Coburn boast on multiple occasions about capturing Washington. Coburn himself thrives on boasts and threats, which will keep the Americans guessing. Well, John Stuart Skinner himself wrote President Madison. He wrote a letter to him indicating that the United States is basically fighting for its survival. In other words, President Madison, it's just a matter of time before Washington, D.C. will be Um, will be destroyed. And what destroyed means is that the uh, capital itself will be burned. Now, as for uh, Skinner's warning, when did this warning, um, when was this warning addressed? On August 11th, 1814. However, it was not the lone warning notification. As a matter of fact, um, On July 27th, a month later, President Madison receives an anonymous letter. What does anonymous mean? Um, It doesn't mean it's coming from a particular person. It it could mean that a letter has come from anybody, like, you know, Jane Doe or John Doe. So the anonymous letter is labeled being from a friend. Historians now know that it most likely was written by a sailor in the British fleet who had been impressed against his own will. This is in quotes, but this is what part of the sailor's letter in quote read. Your enemy have in agitation an attack on the capital of the United States. Okay, James Madison read the letter. 
He turned the letter over to a commander of the Washington defenses who filed it away. Well, I guess that uh, commander is, um, he's turned what you call a um, blind eye. He's um, turned a blind cheek. In other words, he, um, he, he's very uh, naive himself. August 5th, 1814, President Madison receives another dispatch letter, this time from Albert Gallatin, who was, who was a former Treasury Secretary, but who's now on diplomatic duty in Europe. This message, or should I say letter, warned reports of a large British force coming to the United States to inflict, in quotation, very serious injury. We're not talking so much about hurting civilians or hurting people in, um, in open combat. We're talking about um, putting the whole country on, on high alert in terms of um, our, nation's, the, our nation's capital in, um, in danger. In danger to the point where perhaps government may no longer be able to function. So Albert Gallatin also noted in his letter that the United States could not expect any help from France or Russia. So in other words, we're left on our own. Remember, people, um, at this day and at this point in time, we have no such thing as the United Nations. That doesn't come <laughs> for about another um, hundred and thirty some years later. And when does the United Nations get established? After World War II. But we're not anywhere close to that time. But the bottom line is, is that, hey, we are not anywhere near being a first world superpower country. We are still an infant republic. Even though we are close to being 40 years in existence as an independent republic, we, uh, we really haven't grasped the true meaning since the since the time of the post-American Revolution era of knowing what it's like to conduct war on our home soil. So, given that we're on our own, we're going to be in for a rude awakening. Yes, we have had a lot of success with uh, privateering, thanks in part to Joshua Barney and to uh, the other gentleman being uh, Thomas Boyle. While all of that success is great, I hate to say this, people, I just don't think it's going to be enough for what lies ahead, and especially um, by late August into September, which I'll be discussing in the next podcast session. But that is all for tonight, and uh, stay safe out there, and thank you again to all of my fellow uh, 101 History Podcast listeners who have um, been there with me the whole way up until now. Um, and I hope that all of you will continue to do so, not just for this uh, book, Through the Perilous Fight, f fight but for others, for other uh, readings down the road. So take care and stay safe. Good night. <laughs>